0: Now at this time, um, we're going to transition into uh, the reading of God's word. So if you could, if you're able, please stand with me, and we're going to read our passage for today. Passage for today is Acts 18, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Let's pray together uh, before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just this passage that we're going to look at today. Um, As we continue through the story of Acts, the story of the early church, we pray that um, we would be blessed seeing how the church worked together to fulfill the mission, to um, carry out the mission of God, to to make Jesus known to, to all peoples, that they might come to a saving knowledge, that they might come to faith, that they might enjoy um, just the greatness and the pleasures of, of knowing God. Um, I pray that your word would uh, work powerfully in our lives today. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. So many of you have heard stories about teamwork, about cooperation. Uh, perhaps some of you have heard this famous fable. Um, it begins like this. A father had a family of sons, and these sons weren't very nice to each other. They constantly bickered and fought. You know, maybe like some of you who have kids, you, you know very well what I'm talking about. And no matter what the father said to his sons, it didn't seem to do any good. Um, no matter what she tried to get them to get along, just, his words seemed to have no effect. And so, finally, he decided to use an object lesson to to illustrate to them why they needed to get along, to be a family, to work as a team. Um, One day, he sent them to, they were quarreling, and he sent them to different parts of the yard, and he had them them gather a bundle of sticks. And so, these sons came back, and they had all gathered their sticks. Maybe maybe they tried to outdo each other and see who could have the bigger bundle, um, but regardless, they came back, and the father told them, all right, now try to break this bundle in half. And of course, they couldn't do it. And then he said, he untied those, the bundle of sticks that, that they had tried to break in half, and he took out one stick and said, now try to break this stick in half. And of course, they could do it. And most of you have probably heard this story, and the whole point of the story is that, you know, when you're divided, you're not effective, right? You're easily broken, you're easily led astray, but when you are together, you're strong. And perhaps you've heard this story before, perhaps you've heard it in some sort of team-building exercise at work, and to you, it's become kind of passe. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that before. And you might roll your eyes at, this, at, this, at these types of stories, But often it's because we're not excited about the goal. We're not excited about what is the whole point of being a team? What is the whole point of working together? Why are we even doing this in the first place? Um, When we come to the early church, we see something different. We see that the early church was excited about their goal. They were excited about their mission, about what they were trying to accomplish because they had received the greatest news. They had received the life-giving news about Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. That, as we've heard before in, in earlier sermons, that we can be free of the idols that, that capture us, that, um, that you know bring death into our lives, but, and we can turn away from those idols and to the true and living God. This was a message that the early church was passionate about, that they were united together in in seeking to to bring that message to the whole world. And this is our goal, too, as King's Church, here in Long Beach, here today. This has been the goal of the church universal throughout the ages. And so as we come to our passage today, what can we learn from the early church? What What does a growing church look like, a growing, healthy church look like? Um, I believe that our passage today, Acts 18, 24 through 28, presents us with a portrait of that growing church and how every part working together carries out the mission of God. But before we dive into our passage today, it's important to briefly reflect on the story of Acts thus far. As we've been seeing over the weeks, Acts is a story about the beginning and the growth of the Christian church. It's a continuation of the gospel story that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a continuation of the story of the good news of Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying on the cross, and rising again to undo the tyranny of sin and death over all humanity. And this good news was so good and so life-transforming that it couldn't be contained in just Jerusalem. But as Acts 1.8 tells us, it was meant to spread out beyond Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And last week, as Robin preached, we saw that the good news of Jesus had gone quite a ways away from Jerusalem. It had reached the city of Athens, all the way in Greece. And because the Spirit of God was at work, people heard Paul preach at, you know, uh, preach in Athens and Some of them believed and the church grew. And now some might look at Acts and see how Peter and Paul are always preaching these these wonderful evangelistic sermons and sharing Jesus with others and say, look, that's what the church needs. The church needs more evangelism. The church needs more evangelism. We need more people, which is, we need more people to share about who Jesus is and what he has done to those who have not yet come to know him, who have not yet come to place their trust in him. And some might say, we need more of it because that's how the church grows, when more and more people come to believe in Jesus. But in today's passage, we see that the church not only grew in in breadth, in number, but also in depth. Apollos came to understand, as verse 26 puts it, he came to understand the way of God more accurately. And in turn, he greatly helped those who through grace had already believed. Often growth in Christian maturity in Christian knowledge and character is seen at odds with growth in number. Um, we see that, but, but throughout Acts, we see that they work side by side. They're mutually beneficial. Um, as we focus So even as we focus on growth in Christian maturity today, in today's sermon, it should not detract from the call to evangelism we heard last week and vice versa. The two work together. They're working together. Because when it really comes down to it, both the call to bring the gospel to those who've never heard it before and the call to to grow Christians into more mature disciples, it's the same call. It's the call to make disciples, to bring people along in following Jesus, either for the first time or with greater passion and joy. And both are good news. Um, Those who have never heard the gospel need to hear it. And those who have heard it still need to hear it. We still need to hear the gospel daily to be reminded afresh of God's grace to the undeserving. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, likes to say, "'The Gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A through Z of Christianity.'" And in Acts 18, 24 through 28, we read about a dynamic leader named Apollos, who perhaps knew his ABCs, but was still learning the A to Z. But this text is much more than just about one man. It's much more than just about Apollos, it presents a portrait of a growing church, a portrait of a growing church. And this portrait shows that when the church, the church grows, when every part works together, when every part works together to advance the good news. And as we read this passage, there are three parts, three elements to this portrait of a growing church. The first element is leaders, leaders. Even though the leader plainly highlighted in this passage is Apollos, I use leaders plural because it's important to note that, you know, Acts is not just about Peter or Paul. You know, sometimes when we read Acts, we just think, oh, this is just the story of Paul going on his missionary journeys. But as this passage reminds us, other leaders get center stage, and in this case, it's Apollos. The growing church was not about just one man, it was about People working together. It's And while it's true that the bulk of Acts focuses on Paul, passages like this remind us that there were other important leaders. So how was Apollos as a leader, and what can we learn from his example? Now, as I read this passage, three characteristics jump out to me. The first is knowledge. The first is knowledge. In verse 24, we read that Apollos was competent in the scriptures. He was competent in the scriptures. And in verse 25 we read that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now Apollos, a little bit about his background, he had some advantages knowledge-wise because he came from Alexandria. If any of you know your ancient history, Alexandria was one of the greatest cities of learning in the ancient world. They were famous for their amazing library, one of the ancient wonders of the seven, one of the seven ancient wonders. Um, and its Jewish community was also, was likewise ver- known for its scholarship. Um, they were in fact the ones who translated the Old Testament from he- Hebrew to Greek, and which was the Old Testament that many people were using at this time, including Jesus' disciples. And as we'll learn shortly, um, it's true that his knowledge was incomplete. Yet what he did know, he knew very well. Now, many of us have been Christians for some time, and I want to ask you, how well do you know what you know? How well do you know what you know? While many of you may not know the intricacies of infralapsarian and superlapsarian theology, I had to look those up too, could you explain and teach what you do know. In the novel Atonement by Ian McEwan, there's this 13-year-old girl named Brioni Tallis. And in this novel, she completely misreads the budding love that is happening between her older sister, Cecilia, and the son of their housekeeper, Robbie. She doesn't understand it, and she sees it as their love as something more dark, something more violent and aggressive, when there's no hint of that whatsoever. It's just in her young mind, she misinterprets it. And so when one of their visiting cousins is sexually assaulted, she accuses Robbie of that act, which has long and devastating consequences on the entire family, on Robbie and Cecilia's relationship, on Brioni herself. And the tragedy of this novel is how an adolescent's ignorance destroys a man's life. And we may have experienced something similar in our own lives where well-intentioned ignorance has hurt us deeply. Perhaps while going through a difficult life circumstance, someone has told us, not maliciously, but still in a very hurtful way, God is punishing you for what you've done wrong. Find out what you did wrong and confess, confess it to God and your trial will go away. That person knows something about the nature of suffering and how certain types of suffering can be brought about by our own sinful actions, but is also ignorant of the book of Job and righteous suffering, suffering that comes upon those who haven't done anything wrong. So it's a reminder to us to not neglect the importance of knowing deeply and accurately what we do know so that we may be life-giving in our words and actions. The second characteristic of leaders that make up a growing church is passion. First there's knowledge, and then there's passion. We look at Apollos. In verse 26, we read that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And in verse 28, for he powerfully refuted refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos was a man who was passionate about the truth Of Jesus. He not only knew that Jesus was the Christ and could show from scriptures that was the case, but he was unafraid to tell people about it. He spoke boldly about it in front of the synagogue, no matter who might oppose him, no matter the consequences that could result. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, not simply because he had a desire to be right, but because something greater was at stake. Something greater than himself was at stake. Either Jesus was the promised Savior of the world, or he was simply a religious zealot, uh, a Jew, uh, a rebellious Jew who you know, died a criminal's death on the cross. That's all he was if, if it was not true that he was the promised Messiah. And Apollos was gripped by this truth about Jesus. The grip by the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That truth gripped him down to the very core of his being. And so he was full of zeal and passion to let the world know that through Jesus, man can be made right with God. Now, Jonathan Edwards, um, he's a pastor and theologian. Many, Many of him consider him to be America's greatest theologian. Famously talked about how a preacher must have both light and heat. Light and heat, he must not only illuminate the truth and explain doctrine, light, but he must also move his hearers, he must press that truth into their hearts. He must have heat that their hearts would be moved. And light without heat, Edwards says, may gratify itching ears, quote, and may fill the heads of his people with empty notions, but it will not likely save souls." and heat without light, zeal without accuracy and truth, Edwards says, quote, may fire their corrupt passions and affections, but will never make them better, nor lead them one step towards heaven, but drive them apace the other way. Apollos is a wonderful example of someone who is filled with both light and heat, with knowledge and passion. And lastly, we see that he has one, one more important characteristic. He has humility humility. We know that from verse 25, that while Apollos taught accurately what he did know, he only knew the baptism of John. Now, some of you may have read this passage before, and it's a very curious phrase, right? What did it mean that Apollos only knew of the baptism of John? Well, it's not as confusing as we might think. It's not that he didn't know about Jesus. We know that he clearly did according to verse 25, as he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And John the Baptist was all about proclaiming Jesus as the as the promised Messiah. But when John speaks about baptism in Mark 1:8 for example, he says, I baptize you with water. But he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And as we learned at the beginning of our Acts series, the outpouring of the Spirit coincided with the day of Pentecost. So most scholars agree that Apollos apparently knew the basic story of Jesus, but not not much more about what happened afterwards, about what happened after the day of Pentecost, about the church, the early church and its growing ministry. Apollos already believed in Jesus. He seems to have been a follower of the message of Jesus, yet not part of and probably not familiar with the Jesus movement, that is, the church. He knew up to the point of Jesus' death and resurrection, but not any further. Perhaps it could have been because he was down in Alexandria while all of the church was, was growing and spreading up, up in Jerusalem and in, in Asia Minor. But as we see in verse 26, Priscilla and Coquilla took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And I don't think I'm reading into this verse when we conclude that no one is forcing Apollos to listen to the words of Priscilla and Aquila. When they approached him after he spoke in the synagogue, he could have said, Nope, I'm good. I don't need to listen to you. You know, I'm the guy on the stage. I'm the one telling you all these things, and I don't need to to learn from you. Who are you, right? He didn't say that. Rather, he went with them. He had a humble heart. He had a learner's heart. And he didn't think himself above from learning from two people in the crowd. Knowledge, passion, humility are three characteristics we see in Apollos and are important characteristics for all of us who might be in spiritual leadership, who aspire to spiritual leadership. Many of you may not think of yourselves as spiritual leaders, but it is often thrust upon us whether we like it or not. Moms, you lead your children. Husbands, you lead your wives. And consider this, one of the many wonderful things about King's Church, one of the many wonderful things about King's Church is the intergenerational relationships that we have. As, as uh, Jason pointed out even earlier today, older men and women, you are often spiritual examples and models in the friendships that the younger men and women have with you. The younger, myself included, learn from your example. And many of you do wonderfully model knowledge, passion, and humility and I hope that Apollos' example would encourage you to continue in that path and would all of us seek those qualities as we aspire towards being leaders in the church and in the home. Now, as we've glimpsed already, Priscilla and Aquila also played an important role in Apollos' life. They're an example of the second of the three elements that make up this portrait of a growing church. The second element is disciples. Disciplers. Now, disciplers is a Christian term. You know, you probably will never hear it outside of church, but it is a very helpful one. The idea of a discipler is similar to a coach or mentor, yet it goes beyond that. A discipler is first a disciple, a follower of Jesus, who teaches others, who brings them along, who brings others along and teaches them how to follow Jesus as well. A discipler invites someone into their life and teaches them through word and action. This is a well-established pattern throughout the early church, and we see that Barnabas discipled Paul. He took, him, he took Paul, even in the beginnings of Paul's ministry, under his wings, so to speak. In Acts 11, 25 through 26, Barnabas actually seeks out Paul in Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and finding Paul brings him to the city of Antioch. And there for a whole year they, they met with the church and taught others. Paul, likewise, as we see in Acts, takes Silas and Timothy under his wing. He brings them along in his missionary journeys so that they probably spent almost nearly every waking hour with him as Paul went out and evangelized and planted churches. They learned from Paul. They walked with him. They saw his life. So much so that Paul repeatedly calls Timothy his child in in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy. And how encouraging it is to see that not only were Paul and Barnabas engaged in this work, but as verse 26 tells us, Priscilla and Aquila were engaged in this work as well. Um, they disciple Apollos. They take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. And this verse shows us two characteristics of disciples that make up a growing church. The first is that they were hospitable. They were hospitable. Now, we usually read from the English Standard Version here at King's Church, which is a wonderful translation, but as many translations do, they they make interpretive choices for us. And here, I think the NIV, if some of you have your NIV Bible with you and you read out of that regularly, I think it actually has the better translation here. It says, When Aquila and Priscilla heard, when they heard Apollos speaking, they invited him into their home." and explain to him the way of God more adequately. The idea that Priscilla and Aquila welcomed Apollos into their home makes sense in context. It is unlikely that their interaction with Apollos was just a one-time conversation, was just a one-and-done thing. Hey, you know, they catch him after the service and say, hey, you're kind of missing some, some key things about who Jesus is and about his church. No, more likely, they brought him into their home The idea of their hospitality is is much more than our modern our modern definition of hospitality, which is often limited to just you know having dinner parties and entertaining guests in our home. Here we see that hospitality for Priscilla and Aquila was welcoming someone into your home and into your life. I know for a fact that many of you here understand and practice this type of hospitality. Your open door means more than just coming over for dinner. It means, be a part of my life. That's what your open door means. These are the types of disciples that mark a growing church, people who will welcome others into their homes and ultimately their lives so that those invited might follow Jesus in a deeper and more consistent way. The second characteristic of Priscilla and Aquila as disciples is that they are mature. They are mature. They were mature in their character by their approach to Apollos. One commentator points out that rather than correct or denounce Apollos publicly, they invited him in and gave him private instruction. How thoughtful and how tender an approach that is, right? These are the types of disciples that that make up a growing church, a church that is growing not only in number but in depth, in maturity. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor of University Reformed Church in Michigan, puts puts it this way, and it's also a quote in the front of your bulletin, the one indispensable requirement for producing godly mature Christians is godly mature Christians. Perhaps he overstates his case a little bit, but I hope you get what he's getting at. The impact of a life-on-life relationship is powerful, is powerful, and it's essential to Christian growth. We should all aspire to be people who are mature in our character and faith, who open up our homes and our lives that younger Christians might better learn what it means to be a disciple. Because when we do, we never know who we might affect. We never know the person that we've invited to their home, who they might become. Mary King was a cook at Newmarket Academy in Cambridge, England, in the mid-1800s. And in the fall of 1849, a young man named Charles enrolled at that school. She, as a cook, fed him food, of course, but also much more than that. In his autobiography, Charles recounts, "...many a time we have gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of personal election of the saints, their union to Christ, and what vital godliness meant. This was no ordinary cook, as you can see. And I do believe I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. And not only did this cook, did Mary King know scripture and theology, Charles could attest to her vibrant relationship with Christ. There are some Christian people, quote, there are some Christian people who taste and see and enjoy religion in their own souls, who get at a deeper knowledge of it than books can ever give them. And Mary King, according to this young Charles Spurgeon, was one of these people. This young man named Charles Spurgeon grew up to become one of the greatest preachers the world has ever seen. His sermons and writings are still read today and continue to bless the church even centuries later. And he, could, he would gladly say that much of his spiritual formation was due to this cook at his school, Mary King. So thus far, we've seen two portraits, two parts to this portrait of a growing church, leaders and disciplers. Finally, the last element is churches. The last element is churches. This is a third element to our portrait of a growing church. At this point, I'd like to shift our perspective away from just a particular church, but to the universal church, because I believe it's there in the text. It can be easy to look at the stories in Acts and think how they might apply only to our local church, to King's church. But the book of Acts is not just about individual churches. It's about not just about the Jerusalem church, the Antioch church, but it's about the church universal and how the church is working together Advance God's kingdom. Because ultimately, it's about God's kingdom, God's great, wide kingdom, global kingdom, and not about our particular kingdoms. We are, called to what, we are called to be faithful to what we've been given here in King's Church, but we must not lose sight of the bigger picture as well. So while knowledgeable, passionate, humble leaders and hospitable, mature disciples are important parts to a growing church, Sending and receiving churches are essential parts. Are an essential part to our portrait of a growing church in a much wider sense. First, sending churches. In verse 27, Apollos had a desire to leave Ephesus, which is on the west coast of Turkey, and he wanted to cross the Aegean Sea to Achaia, which is a region in western Greece. Now, we don't know exactly why Apollos had this desire, But we do know that the response, we do know the response of this church in Ephesus, where he was currently. What did they do? Did they try to keep him? Did they try to dissuade him from going? Did they say, no, you can't go, like, we we need you? No, instead, despite all his gifts, despite, I'm sure he was, you know, doing great work there, they encouraged him. They even wrote to the disciples in that region to welcome him. They sent him out. They were generous with one of their most precious assets, so to speak, a leader with knowledge, passion, and humility that any church would love to have. And we also see that Apollos was well received. There was a receiving church at the other end. We see this more by way of inference, perhaps, but when he arrived in verse 27, it tells us that Apollos was able to greatly help those who, through grace, had, received, who had believed. Those who received him were receptive to Apollos. They were receptive to his teaching. They had the same attitude towards Apollos that Apollos had, had towards Priscilla and Aquila. They had an open heart, a listening ear, and a humble attitude towards Apollos' teaching. And so the church in Achaia, most likely the Corinthian church, grew in depth, in understanding, in knowledge that is is more than just head knowledge, but a knowledge that is whole-souled and transformative, a knowledge that goes deep down and transforms the way we live. And we see all the parts working together here to advance God's kingdom. Priscilla and Aquila and the Ephesian church, Both of them invest in Apollos, and because they had a proper perspective towards church growth, they sent him out in order that he might bless the church in Achaia. As we consider all these aspects to growing church, perhaps you, like me, you might be feeling a mixture of emotions. To be a part of kingdom work is both daunting and thrilling. You long to be like Priscilla or Apollos, but you feel inadequate for the task. Often sermons where we look at the lives of Christians can weigh us down. They can burden us with guilt for all the ways that we fall short. And the feelings of conviction within that complex of emotions are good. You know, perhaps you, like me, might be feeling, I am not the hospitable person that I ought to be. I fall way short of that. I am far off from knowing Scripture as I should and having a humble attitude towards others. But I hope that our conviction would also be married with comfort, not a comfort that lessens the sting of our conviction, but empowers us to move forward. Let us recognize that as we seek to be like Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila, and like the Ephesian church, that we can do so knowing that They did not go first. There is a better leader who knew scripture better than anyone else because it was his word, who was so passionate about that he said, it is my food to do the Father's will, and who was humble even unto death. And there is a better discipler who welcomes all types of people into his presence, who does not turn even the weakest in faith away, Who's mature in character and knowledge? Who is perfect even in character and knowledge? And there is a better, this better leader and discipler is Jesus, who was sent by the Father into our world, not simply to that we might become better moral people, but that our life, our mission, our heart might be utterly transformed. Our whole being would be reoriented away from ourselves and towards the God of life. He empowers us with his spirit to be more than just a portrait of a growing church, but to be the living, moving body of Christ, bringing the good news through our words and mercy and justice through our deeds. Let's pray together. Father God, we humbled by this passage as we consider um, the leader Apollos was um, knowledge, passion, and humility. As we consider those who faithfully discipled him, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, full of hospitality and grace and maturity. And as we think of the Ephesian church who generously sent him out We know that we fall short of this picture, and yet we're thankful that um, it is not dependent on us, ultimately, that we, we we get to be a part of your kingdom work because of Jesus Christ, because he has saved us and transformed us. He has given us a greater purpose, a greater mission in life, one that is not one that is not, one that will simply fade away, that will um, be done and over with when we die, but last for eternity. And I pray for everyone here that as we go throughout our lives, that we would keep our eyes fixed on, on Jesus, that we keep our eyes fixed on what our lives are truly about. Um, we would not get caught up in the idols of, of success and Comfort and power and family and career, um, we would know that these are good things, but they are not ultimate things. So I pray God, um, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that might turn towards you and empower us, to by your spirit, to live out your mission. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.